0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And it's time to start a new short series, series by two episodes. It's not really a series, I guess. Tech Stuff listener Paul asked that I would do, if I would do an episode about Blockbuster, the mega chain video rental store that at one point had more than 9,000 locations worldwide. I'm instead going to do two episodes on the company. This episode is called The Birth of Blockbuster, and spoiler alert, the title of the next episode is The Death of Blockbuster. Uh, So this is going to be all about the founding of Blockbuster and its rise to dominate the video rental industry. And the next one is, what the heck happened, right? How did it, how did things go so wrong for Blockbuster that today only one Blockbuster video store exists in the United States? Though I should say there are a few others that are actually in overseas locations, but only one U.S. Blockbuster remains. So we're going to find out together. Let's dive right in and stop delaying. Wow. What a difference. Well, to understand the rise of Blockbuster, we need to look back at the development of the rise of the VCR. Sony's Betamax and JVC's VHS standards debuted in the 1970s, and both formats used magnetic tape to store video content, and they were incompatible with one another, so you could not put a Betamax tape in a VHS VCR. They also were enormous disruptors. You know, we talk about disruptive technology— Videotapes were huge and disruptive. Media companies hated the idea of videotapes. They tried to stop the technology. They were worried that people would have the ability to tape content right off their televisions, and then that would somehow eat up into their revenue. Maybe there'd be piracy issues. It was just a big scare. And in fact, we see this all the time. Whenever there was a new media format that would allow people to put media onto some sort of storage device, we've seen companies react negatively, whether it's CDs, DVDs, whatever. And same was true way back in the 70s with uh, VHS and Betamax. The first film to be released on VHS, meaning you could go and purchase a copy of the movie on VHS in the store, would be a South Korean movie called The Young Teacher that became available way back in 1976. But America wouldn't start having access to VHS tapes until 1977. A company called Magnetic Video had a great idea. Well, the the owner of Magnetic Video, Andre Blay, he had a great idea. He said, I'm going to license movies. I'm going to go to a movie studio. I'm going to pay a licensing fee. And uh, in return, I will end up producing videotapes of that studio's uh, library of content. And so he lands a deal with 20th Century Fox. And the agreement was that Blay would pay a licensing fee of $7.50 per video that he sold and also give a $300,000 upfront advance to 20th Century Fox. Magnetic Video had an organization called the Video Club of America that had a membership fee of $10. And through that club, you could purchase movies like Patton, MASH, Hello, Dolly, The Sound of Music, The French Connection, among others. But the cost of every video was $49.95, a princely sum. So $7.50 would go to 20th Century Fox, and the rest would be divvied up between, you know, Andre Blay and and whatever the expenses were. By December of 1977... An entrepreneur named George Atkinson got a crazy idea. He had already run a home theater system business, but now he thought, what if I bought copies of these movies and then offered them as rentals to people who own VCRs and Betamax machines? I could get uh, a lot of money this way. I could generate a lot of revenue. It's going to take a big upfront cost because you have to build out the inventory. You have to pay for all those videotapes. But then over... uh, a sequence of rentals for a low amount per rental you can start making that money back you you make back your investment and you start making a profit atkinson opened up a 600 square foot storefront he called video cassette rentals and he would later rename it the video station it was on wilshire boulevard in los angeles california and that's when the video rental business was born atkinson was a pioneer in this space and he would even franchise his idea. He would uh, license that out to other small business owners. Now, the media companies, again, hated this idea, but the, the license agreements they had made for videotapes, they were intended for home sale, right? They were meant for the home theater enthusiast to go out and purchase a $50 videotape of a movie. But Copyright law was pretty clear. There was nothing illegal about what Atkinson was doing. He was His rental business did not violate any laws. So while the movie studios didn't like the idea, they couldn't legally stop it. Later on, those same studios would totally come around to this rental industry. It would become a lucrative revenue source. But of course, at first, it was brand new. And as we all know, big companies hate new things they're scary. And across the United States, other entrepreneurs would follow Atkinson's lead. Some of them were independent mom-and-pop stores, so little local neighborhood video rental facilities. And then one guy would start up a business that would become the giant of this burgeoning industry. Now, that one guy's name might surprise you, because when you talk about Blockbuster, one name tends to pop up more frequently than others. There was a billionaire named Wayne Huezenga and he made his fortune growing Blockbuster and then ultimately sold it to Viacom in the 90s, which I will cover in our next episode. And we will get to him. He is a crucial part of Blockbuster's history, but he was not the person who started the chain. That honor goes to a guy named David Cook of Dallas, Texas. David Cook was a programmer and an entrepreneur, and in 1982, he founded a company called Cook Data Services. And this company built databases and software and some hardware tools for the petroleum industry. His company uh, was doing pretty well, but then the oil business as a whole, the whole industry, took a huge hit in the early 1980s. And so Cook started to look around for other opportunities. It was clear that the oil industry was not going to be a reliable source of revenue. His wife, Sandy, loved film. And she said, maybe you should look into video rental operations because we're starting to see these businesses pop up. And I think you could probably do a really good job with it. So Cook began to do research. He began to look into the business of video rentals. And he saw that most video stores were actually pretty small operations. They were limited to an inventory that represented some of the biggest movie titles because the cost per video was pretty high, so it was prohibitively expensive to aim for a really large inventory spanning niche genres and interests, right? Like, if you sit there and say to yourself, well, E.T. is gonna be huge, so I wanna make sure that we have plenty of copies of E.T. That's a bad example because of how long it took E.T. to get to the home video market. But just assume that we're talking about something that was available in 1985. So you say, I want to have a whole bunch of copies of that because it's a big, big uh, name. But there's this other smaller film, maybe let's say it's Eraserhead. You know, it's a David Lynch movie and people have heard about it, but most people think of it, oh, that's that weird art house kind of film. I don't understand it. It's very independent and strange and Surreal and, and absurd, and I don't, that's not for me. And so, a lot of these video rental stores would ignore those other titles and just focus on the really big, most recent ones. But Cook thought there might be a way of appealing to a broader audience by including those titles. He also noted that a lot of video stores had a pretty clunky way of actually renting titles. Movies typically would not be kept on shelves because there was a very legitimate fear that customers might come in, see a videotape on a shelf, get some sticky fingers, slip that video cassette into a bag and just walk right on out. And then next thing you know, they have the latest copy of the uh, most recent releases. And so that was something that you typically wouldn't see in your normal video rental stores. You, would, you might see cases, but there'd be no videotapes inside. You would have to take it out to the desk, and then they would have to go find a copy of that movie, and they would have to do the whole checkout process, which typically was not automated. It was laborious. It was slow. It was not good customer experience. So in 1985, David Cook decides he's going to take a stab at this, and he opens up what would become the first blockbuster video rental store. Uh, This was still under the umbrella of his company, Cook Data Systems. He bought an inventory of movies and opened a store space. And that inventory included 8,000 tapes, which represented 6,500 different titles. And remember, each of those is costing quite a bit of money per go. We're talking like around 50 bucks per tape, sometimes 60. Depends on the the title and the uh, movie studio. But you multiply that by 8,000, that's a lot of money. But it gave his store a much larger selection than most other stores and was significantly bigger to the competitor that was geographically closest to him. So he had an incredible advantage just from an inventory perspective. Cook also would outfit every single tape with a special magnetic strip, and he mounted sensors near the door of his shop to discourage theft. So if you took the tape through those sensors, an alarm would go off and Cook would know or his employees would know that someone was trying to lift one of those videotapes. And um, I remember this setup vividly because I remember you would go to rent the tapes and the process would have the clerk actually put the videotape on the other side of the sensors uh, on their side of the counter. So you'd have to, you know, you'd have to complete your transaction, walk through the sensors, pick up your movie and then you could leave. So good times. Uh, that st- it was still in, in, uh, in place when I was renting movies or when my family was renting movies in the late 80s. He also incorporated a database that could actually keep track of all the rental titles. So pulling a, a title up on the system would tell you immediately where it was, whether it was out for rent or if it should be in the store. So he could keep track of where everything was at any given time. It also meant that he could see which titles were getting rented more frequently. And if necessary, he could order another copy of a title if it was proving to be uh, incredibly popular and consistently checked out. Checking out titles was actually computerized and automated as well. That was a huge advantage over other video rental stores. So a customer would first have to become a member of the store. You couldn't just rent anything. You had to first apply for a membership card. And you would get a membership card for, you'd pay a fee, get a membership card. that has a unique barcode on it that's tied to your account. So you have a customer profile. And whenever you scan your membership card, it links whatever transaction you are doing to your customer profile in Cook's computer system. And every videotape would also have its own barcode, So if you wanted to check out a video, you'd bring it up to the front. The clerk would scan your card. They would scan the video. This links the video to your profile. It tells the system, hey, Jonathan has rented Big Trouble in Little China for the 80th time. So Jonathan's got Big Trouble in Little China uh, on rent, and we know it's going to be due in X number of days. So that way they could actually keep track of all that information too. And it meant that if you kept the movie longer than what, the membership agreement allowed you to, you'd end up having to pay late fees, which would become a very important part of Blockbuster's revenue model, as it turns out. The business was a smash success. According to Cook, the night they opened, they had to close off and lock the doors to limit the number of people who are coming in and overcrowding the store. Cook found that people were really eager to rent all sorts of movies, not just the big titles, but other ones as well. So he discovered that that prevailing wisdom, that you should really focus on the latest releases, didn't really hold true, that a lot of people were interested in watching older films, things that they had heard about but never seen, or maybe they had seen it years ago but hadn't seen it since. He found that those... Smaller titles had real value, so it turned out that uh, his approach was more effective. The following summer, in 1986, Cook would open three more stores. Not even a year had gone by since he had opened the first one, and already he was ready to expand. He also changed the company over to become Blockbuster Entertainment Corporation in June 1986. Things were looking up. And Cook was seeking investment in the form of an IPO to fund this expansion because it was expensive. But just a few days before the offering was to take place, a financial reporter did a piece on Cook. That piece was kind of a hatchet job. It highlighted how the oil industry failure nearly tanked his company just a few years earlier. And it questioned whether Cook had the expertise in the video field to make his business a real success. And it was such a damaging piece that it tanked that equity offering that was planned. And due to that expansion and the high upfront costs, the company ended 1986 with a $3.2 million shortfall. But the story obviously doesn't end there. It could have. This could have been the end of Blockbuster and we never would have talked about it. The name never would have risen beyond Dallas, Texas, and we would just be ignorant of it. But of course, things did not go that way. I'll talk more about what happened in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So here's Cook with a business he knows can be successful. But he's got a huge cash flow crisis on his hands. In February 1987, Cook sells off one third of the company to a group of three investors, and all three were from another big company that Cook had some experience with in the past. It was a garbage disposal business, of all things, and it was called Waste Management. Side note, I once tried to launch a fitness company called Waste Management, spelled slightly differently, but it never did very well. But the other Waste Management was a different story. It had done really well. And one of their co-founders was, was the guy named Wayne Wezinga. And Wezinga had retired from Waste Management in 1984. He and John Melk, who was the president of Waste Management's international division, and Donald Flynn, who was the CFO of Waste Management, all went in to invest in Blockbuster, pouring more than $18 million into the company. Cook ended up handing over control to the company to Huizinga later on that year. It just was clear that he was not going to be able to hold on to the company. And Cook's business strategy was not the way that Huizinga and his his partners wanted to go. Cook wanted to create a franchise system. He wanted to license his computer system he had created, the database system, and Blockbuster's name to independent entrepreneurs. And that way he wouldn't have to oversee all the operations. He could benefit from the licensing fees and these small independent uh, video store owners could benefit from the work he had done building out the database. But Wazinga had a different idea. He wanted the company to maintain ownership of as many stores as possible with direct control. Cook reportedly had issues with the new leaders of Blockbuster, and by one report, I saw he had a hearty disagreement with one of Huizinga's direct reports. I believe the, uh, the, the piece I read called it one of Huizinga's lieutenants. So Cook decides he's going to get out of the game, the guy who founded the company. So in April 1987, Cook sells off his shares of the company he founded, and he goes to work on other businesses. His payout amounted to something in the area of around $20 million, somewhere between 18 and 20 million, which isn't bad. Obviously, that's a lot of money. I mean, it makes you a millionaire, a multi-millionaire. But that was a fraction of what he could have made had he stuck around. However, based on the little bit of information I could find about Cook, who is a pretty private person uh, overall, he did not regret his decision to leave when he did. For one thing, it didn't sound like Money was of a super high priority in his life. Like, sure, money's nice. It's good to have it. But he's not consumed with the idea of constantly making more money. He appears to have more of an engineering bent where he likes to recognize problems and find ways to solve them. So he, he leaves the company behind. And the founder has gone by April 1987, not quite two years after the company started in the first place. The new leadership decides to pick up stakes from Dallas and relocate to a new headquarters. The new home base of operations for Blockbuster would then be Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So they move out from Dallas to Fort Lauderdale. By the summer of 1987, Blockbuster had grown into a company with 15 of its own stores, and 20 franchised stores. Some things would remain the same as when Cook ran things. The standard rental period was three days, which is what Cook had established. Stores would open at 10 a.m. They would close at midnight. That was another thing that Cook had established. And people could rent more than one film at a time. Other interesting things that Cook had learned and that the new owners were able to leverage to greater effect held some surprising data. For one thing, 70% of rentals were of non-hit films. They were movies that didn't receive a wide release or some that received no theatrical release at all. And that encouraged the company to follow Cook's example and make sure that new video stores, whenever they would open one up, would have a broad spectrum of titles across all genres to capitalize on that trend. The company also made it a practice to choose its locations very carefully. They would scout out potential neighborhoods, not just to find a good storefront space, you know, not just to say, oh, well, this this land, real estate here is ideal for us, but also they wanted to get a really good understanding of the demographics of the neighborhood because that would influence the choices the company would make for the inventory held by that store. So if you go to a location and it has a really large immigrant population, then you might include more foreign films that represent the demographics of that area better so that Uh, If there's, let's say there's a large Russian population in a town, you might wanna try and get as much Russian cinema as possible because you're going to appeal to the folks who live in that area. One other big decision the company directors made was that the video store would not carry X-rated films. Uh, They decided they definitely wanted a family-friendly company, a family-oriented business. So that was right out. And in the video rental days, Uh, There frequently were video rental stores that would have a a surreptitious curtain hung up in the store, and behind that was where all the the X-rated material was. Blockbuster said, we're not doing that at all. That's totally against what we're going to stand for, so we won't even uh, entertain that thought. And then Huizinga directed his new company to expand in that old tried and true way by buying up competition. Why open new stores if you can buy existing ones? Although, to be fair, Blockbuster did both. They didn't just go out and acquire other companies. They also opened up new stores of their own. But they did do quite a a bit of acquisitions. So one thing that they started to do under Wazinga was to try and buy back franchised stores. So the goal was to reduce the number of franchises to 40% of all Blockbuster stores. So the company would operate the other 60% directly. Wazinga started acquiring regional chains of video rental stores. So he would look for chains that held a strong position in their local markets. And then he would go out and buy those. So that way, instead of having to go into a market and compete against an established uh, rival, they buy out the potential rival from the beginning and then just take their place. So in March 1987, Blockbuster bought out a chain called Southern Video Partnership, in May of that same year, they acquired Movies To Go Incorporated, and that was just the beginning. By the end of 1987, Blockbuster had risen to become the fifth largest video chain by revenue, and they operated 133 stores. Huizinga also planned for the future. Blockbuster built an enormous distribution center in Dallas, this huge warehouse building, and it was essentially a videotape warehouse. It held industry so that a store would be able to ramp up almost instantaneously. Essentially, Blockbuster would be able to choose a location for a new store, secure that location, do a build out for the store, and as soon as it was ready, they could stock it. They could fill the shelves because they had this big distribution center that held massive numbers of tapes that were representative of multiple stores worth of inventory. In March 1988, Wazinga led the charge to acquire another video rental company called Video Library Incorporated, which was based out of San Diego, California, and had 43 locations at the time of the acquisition. Blockbuster paid $6.4 million in cash, plus some stock. And then in April 1988, Blockbuster partnered with a company called the United Cable Television Corporation, or UCTC. And UCTC would help Blockbuster open 100 franchised stores over the course of nearly three years. UCTC also purchased 20% of ownership in Blockbuster, uh, although they would not retain all of that percentage, that stake, over the years. By the end of 1988, Blockbuster Video had more than 400 stores and was already the largest video chain rental company in the United States. So it hit number one status just three years after it had launched and just really just one year after Huizinga took over. And it was still getting bigger. To celebrate the new year in 1989, Blockbuster made another big move. They made a bid for a company called Major Video, which was based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Major Video was the fourth largest video rental company in the United States. And the deal was made official for $92.5 million. Blockbuster kept buying up competitors and companies that were running Blockbuster franchises and brought those stores back under the direct control of Blockbuster Corporate. By the end of 1989, just two years after Wazinga and his crew took over operations, Blockbuster had grown to more than 700 stores, sales had tripled, and profits were almost four times larger than they had been before Huizinga came on board. The company's market value was seven times more than it had been before he came on board. And then the company hit a little roadblock. This is what we call a cliffhanger. I'll tell you what that roadblock was in just a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsors. So that roadblock came in the form of a financial analysis report which accused Blockbuster management of engaging in some misleading or maybe even shady accounting. According to the report, Blockbuster was hiding its expenses by spreading them out over long time frames. The company would end up spreading out the cost of acquiring and building stores over a 40-year period. The implication there was that the company was planning on operating those businesses for at least 40 years to generate revenue to cover those costs. And Blockbuster was also spreading out the cost of actual videotapes. They said, well, we're paying for videotapes over a three-year period. So when we make a big purchase, we are giving ourselves three years to recover that. Now, according to the analyst who wrote this report, that was not realistic because a three-year-old tape would not hold the same value as a new tape and not generate as much revenue. So you would see a decreased or or diminished returns on rentals, right? You make a, a video available, and if it's a new film, it might be very much sought after over the course of the first couple of months of it being out. But that would start to taper off. And it was true that a large percentage of rentals were coming from Smaller films, but it didn't mean that the same smaller film was constantly being rented, right? A, a, a single title might only get rented once or twice a month. It's just collectively across all of those small films, there was a lot of rentals going on. So the analyst was saying you can't just spread the cost of a video over the course of three years because it's making too many assumptions. And you would say, you know, this three-year-old tape is not going to have the same value as a brand-new tape. Unless, of course, the old tape was some sort of classic, like, I don't know, Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, and the brand-new tape was something not so classic, like, Ernest Goes to Camp. Because that's an easy call, right? But on top of those charges that the analyst uh, made against Blockbuster, the report also stated that Blockbuster was relying heavily upon the initial franchise fee For way too much of its revenue. The report found that 28% of Blockbuster's revenues came from these one-time fees. So nearly a third of all revenue that Blockbuster was making came from this franchise fee that would be paid one time by each franchise. In other words, in order to keep that amount of revenue steady, you would have to open at least as many franchises the next year, right? If you Make 28% of your revenue from these one-time fees. If you don't don't open as many franchises or more the following year, you're going to have a decrease in that percentage of revenue and you need to make it up somewhere else. So this would create a business plan that was incredibly aggressive and probably unsustainable because at some point you're going to hit maximum market penetration. You are not going to be able to open up more franchises because the market would be saturated. There would already be enough franchises in various regions, and there wouldn't be enough demand to open up another one. So you can't count on one-time franchise fees to be a third of your revenue. It was a short-term strategy, according to this analyst. And because it was making up such a significant percentage of revenue, it was a big warning flag. Blockbuster had a prompt response. To this? Well, first of all, their stocks took a hit. Their stock price dipped because this report was pretty damaging. But their swift response was this I don't care. Yep, management remained defiant. They refused to change the way they operated. They said, This is how we do business and we're seeing a lot of success. So go for a long walk off a short pier. Gradually, the stock price recovered because sustainable or not, Blockbuster's strategy was inflating the company's value. So the company's value was increasing, even if on the long term, this strategy could not sustain itself. Maybe someday that would all come crashing down. But in the short term, Blockbuster stock looked like a surefire ticket to profits, The company was dominating the home video space, and home video itself was performing like gangbusters. Not only were people eager to get their hands on movies that they might have missed during initial release, it also opened up a new industry where studios could either choose to offload titles to home video instead of going the theatrical release route, or even purposefully make movies with the intent of making them direct-to-video titles. Blockbuster had another hiccup in November 1989. That's... So, I've got to backtrack a little bit. I mentioned earlier that they entered a partnership with United Cable Television Corporation. Well, in 1988, United Cable Television Corporation merged with United Artists Communications Incorporated, and they formed a new company called United Artists Entertainment Incorporated. And now United Artists was the largest shareholder of Blockbuster. Following the merger between those two companies, United Cable Television Corporation and United Artists Communications, United Artists wanted to restructure, right? They had just merged two companies together and I say like, we need to streamline, we need to get rid of any redundant departments or systems and find out what works best for us as an entertainment company and streamline stuff. Part of that meant selling off the 28 blockbuster franchises that the company owned and operated, and also divesting itself of the shares it had of Blockbuster, which by that time made up about 12% of all shares in the company. That again raised questions about Blockbuster's business plans. Would the company be able to operate the way it had been indefinitely, or was this the tipping point? Management saw one surefire solution to the challenges they were facing. Because expansion in the United States was slowing quite a bit in part due to saturation, right? There were a lot of markets that already had enough video rental stores to support that population. So growth in the United States was getting increasingly challenging. But overseas markets presented huge opportunities. And I've seen this happen with other companies, including companies I've worked for, where a company reaches a really big size within one country... And then growth is just really hard to do because you've already grown so much in your home country, you, get, you don't really have room to get bigger. So investors still want a return on their investment, right? They still want to make a profit from investing in the company. That means that the company ha- has to not just do well, it needs to grow year over year in order for investors to get a return on that investment. This is why we see so much emphasis on growth, not just performance, But how much did you grow this year compared to last year? So you are left with some hard choices. You can try to create more customers in your home country, but that gets more challenging the longer you go, because the larger you get, the fewer, the smaller the pool is, right? The fewer number of non-customers you have. And it gets harder and harder to convince those to become customers. Sometimes it's impossible. Your other choice is to try and expand into other countries. And Blockbuster chose the foreign market strategy. John Melk, one of the three investors who came over from waste management back in 1987, traveled to the United Kingdom and he opened up a British subsidiary of Blockbuster. The uh, store that he opened up in South London was called The Ritz, And once again, Blockbuster went on a really aggressive path to open as many stores as possible. Before 1989 had ended, Blockbuster had more than 1,000 stores. And by June 1990, they would have more than 1,200 stores in the United States alone. So they were still opening up locations very, very quickly. And even though the United States was a tougher market, they were still opening up more stores there. The company also created ad campaign partnerships with fast food restaurants, you know, make a night of it, dinner and a movie, that kind of thing. And they continued reaching out to new markets like Japan while continuing the old practice of gobbling up other video store chains, particularly big ones that were struggling to compete with Blockbuster. But while the company was growing in size, it was seeing earnings growth decrease year over year. So it was growing, but it was growing at a less... Accelerated rate—it's hard to say. You know, you're you're not getting smaller; you're just not getting as big as quickly. So the video rental business looked like it was losing some steam. Uh, in 1988, Blockbuster's earnings were up 114% from the 1987 numbers. So 1987 to 1988, earnings increased by 114%. From 88 to 89, earnings increased 93%. So a drop in the growth rate. They're still growing, just not as fast. The 1990 uh, numbers were even more dramatic. So from 89 to 90, it was a 48% growth rate. So it went from 114 to 93 to 48. So each year that was going by, the company was getting bigger by the number of stores and the amount of money it was making. But the earnings growth wasn't really keeping pace with the expansion of the company. Like, they were opening up more stores and more franchises. But it was a diminishing returns on the amount of earnings. Weizinga had an interesting explanation for the decline in growth. He said the Gulf War was to blame. Specifically, he said people were watching the news more frequently rather than watching movies. And so television was sapping his customer base. At least that was his take on it. So he's saying... No one's coming out to rent a movie because they are glued to the television to see what's going on with the Gulf War. Blockbuster was starting to see some new competition, too. Pay-per-view had been around for a bit, and on-demand content was just kind of getting started around this time, but they were starting to gain traction. And these were very convenient offerings because there was no need to leave the house to go get a tape or to return one, and you didn't have to worry about a late fee, and you didn't even have to rewind a videotape at the end. Uh, In the early days, pay-per-view, you had to tune in at a specific time. It wasn't on-demand early, early on, but on-demand was starting to come out with things like satellite television. Management noticed this. And so some blockbuster stores began offering new services beyond video rental. You know, they wanted to diversify a bit, appeal to a broader audience, a broader customer base. So they started renting out video games and even video game consoles like the Sega Genesis. And a few began to sell music, mostly in the form of audio cassettes and then CDs. The company also changed its rental policies for new movies. And this was an effort to increase volume or increase the rate of rentals. So for brand new movies, the idea was we're going to reduce the rental fee. It's going to be cheaper to rent a brand new movie than it is other films. However, the due date is earlier. So you can rent a movie a brand new film that's just come out and it's going to be less money than it would be for something else. But you have to return it to the store earlier. And the idea here was that they would be able to rent the same films out more frequently and keep that revenue stream coming in. Blockbuster also began to look around in the retail world for senior level executives with a lot of experience in retail to bring them on board and enhance company leadership. Because, you know, the guys who were in charge, they all came from waste management. They wanted to find other people who had this bigger ex- big experience with bigger retail companies to help advise uh, the senior level of management. By 1991, Blockbuster had stores in numerous countries, including Spain, Venezuela, Japan, New Zealand, and more. Philips Electronics would invest more than $60 million in Blockbuster. In 1991, and across the company, Blockbuster made 1.5 billion dollars in sales. Now that is a phenomenal amount of money—one and a half billion dollars in sales. However, when you look at earnings, while they sold one and a half billion dollars worth of product, they earned only 89 million dollars out of 1.5 billion in sales. That's amazing, you know, to, to have a 1.5 billion in sales but your earnings are $89 million. That shows that the, this was a very expensive business to be in. The, those upfront costs of opening up those stores, the acquisition cost was incredibly high. So Wazinga and company, they were really growing very quickly, but they weren't making that much money once you factored in all the costs. Compar- comparatively speaking, I mean, $89 million is still a huge amount of money. It's just dwarfed by $1.5 billion in sales. In 1992, Blockbuster would make more acquisitions in video rental stores. No surprise there. Same as it ever was. But the company also entered a new phase. It acquired companies called Music Plus and Sound Warehouse. Uh, This warehouse is spelled W-H-E-R-E. And this was an effort to expand Blockbuster into a multimedia company that not only rented videos, but also would act as a music store. So expanding that cassette tape and CD business they had started earlier. Blockbuster also formed a partnership with Virgin Group. That's the UK company that uh, is a big media company over in England. And the goal was to create mega stores. Wazinga had a vision of these huge box stores that you would go into, kind of like the big electronics or big uh, media stores, things like, think about um, Best Buy or Circuit City, something like that, but really big store. And it would offer not just video rentals, but it would also sell stuff, like it might sell movies, computer software, video games, music, and even have like a, an arcade type experience uh, with virtual reality attractions. That was his idea. And he had sort of a prototype of, uh, open up in Florida, but it never really took off the way he had planned. Huizinga also had a uh, interesting idea that foreshadowed the digital media age. He ended up uh, starting a project with IBM. He he worked with folks over at IBM. He wanted them to develop a system that would uh, burn music tracks to a CD very, very fast. And the idea he had was that customers would come into his store, they would be able to go up to this machine, and they would be able to browse through a huge digital database of songs. And then they'd be able to select songs from that digital database, which would then get burned to this CD. You would get a custom mixed CD made up of the tracks that you had chosen from all these different albums. As it turned out, music studios were not too keen on that idea, just as they would heartily resist the digital revolution in music a couple of years later. Uh, So there was a lot of of uh, disagreement on that particular approach. In 1993, Blockbuster had more than 3,400 stores around the world, and about a thousand of those were in international markets. Wazinga purchased controlling shares in a movie and television production studio called Republic Pictures. That one owned a large library of films and TV series, and they also bought nearly 50% of the shares in Spelling Entertainment. That's a television production company, and that set the ground for what would happen in 1994, which we could call the beginning of the end. In the next episode, we will cover that. We will talk about the death of Blockbuster, how it went from this enormous peak, and we haven't hit peak Blockbuster yet. It continues to grow uh, unsteadily, but it continues to grow until things kind of come to a crashing halt. That will be in our next episode. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a person in tech, uh, maybe it's just a specific product that you think needs to have a good profile, let me know. Send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is Tech Stuff Don't forget. We have a merchandise store over at tpublic.com techstuff. Go get yourself a TechStuff coffee mug. Be cool like me. And remember, everything you buy there, you know, a little bit of that comes to the show, so you help support the show, and you end up with something cool for yourself, which is awesome. And don't forget to follow our Instagram account. And that's all for me today. I'll talk to you again really soon.